0: Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of interpreting the Bible and preaching the Word throughout the seasons of the church's life. In this episode, Bible professor Mark Hamilton walks us through the scriptures that many churches will read the week after Easter 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this first in a series of seven podcasts on the season from Easter to Pentecost in year C, or in this case 2022. In this series of podcasts, as in the previous one related to Lent and Easter, I'm going to be talking about the text that the lectionary gives us for each Sunday in the season, and trying to reflect on certain aspects of those texts and how they relate to each other, and most of all, how they might bring spiritual nurturance and and food for our souls uh, during this difficult time that we're all living in. Let me begin with a prayer. Lord, take these words of ours, small as they are, and allow them to point to the great word you have spoken. Let us hear the words of Scripture with faith and diligence and trust and expectation that in them we will find the path to you. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. For the second Sunday of Easter, uh, the lectionary gives us four texts, Acts 5, 27 to 32, Psalm 118, 14 through 29, or Psalm 150, uh, Revelation 1, 4 through 8, and John 20, 19 through 31. I'm, I'm going to start with the Psalm text, Psalm 118, which is this song of celebration and thanksgiving. Uh, it's communal, and it opens and closes with praise to God and with a the the plural imperative, praising, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Kil ulab chasdo, for his mercy endures forever, a refrain that will show up in later Psalms in the book of of Psalms. Uh, It's also individual in that there's an I speaking, an individual speaking, who has experienced some unspecified kind of salvation and wishes to share that With the rest of the community. You you remember that psalms of lament in the Psalter usually end either with a promise to praise God or with some statement of praise to God. And the flip side of lament are these hymns of praise which in some sense um, instantiate and carry out um, that promise to God to praise, to express thanksgiving for some good thing that has been received by the human being. This psalm in particular uh, is instructive because it uh, gives us lines starting in verse 14 about uh, the Lord is my strength and my might, he has become my salvation. A very familiar line, but it's, it's a statement about how Though I was in deep trouble before, he uses this image of being surrounded by swarms of bees, which is, you know, very graphic and arresting, uh, scary, if you've ever been swarmed by bees. And he says that in contrast to that terrible time, I have received help from God, uh, who is my strength and my might, who is who is part of my my life and the the bedrock of my life. Uh, and then the psalm goes on and talk and and changes perspective slightly, so that it's no longer about my experience, my my personal life, but it's about a, a more general statement about reality. About uh, uh, verse fifteen, there are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. In other words, the people of God, who don't literally live in tents at this point; they live in houses made of mud brick, mostly but it's an expression. It means that in, in the life that we live, uh, in, in our settlements, in our ordinary life, there's still songs of praise because God has acted not just in the distant past and not just with people we've only heard of, but in our own lives as well. There's something to celebrate. Uh, and the Psalm uh, tells the, the audience in verse 19, to uh, open, open for me the gates of righteousness. Again, the, the the verb is plural. So the community is supposed to open up the, um, the gates that lead into the heavenly city, or better, into Jerusalem, the city that echoes the heavenly city, and to uh, join this singer in the celebration of the good deeds of God. And then we get these these very familiar verses that in the New Testament become messianic texts about the stone the builder rejected, but in the context of Psalm 118, it's it's a reference really to to the person singing. Uh, this it's one of the images of of the struggle that preceded God's intervention. Or if we want to flip it this a different direction, I tried to say in the last series of podcasts that in reading the Old Testament, instead of, instead of always trying to find Jesus in the Old Testament, we should try to find the Old Testament in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is in the New Testament the one who shares in our suffering and therefore shares in a song crying for help and a song of thanksgiving. Uh, And so what becomes a messianic text becomes that because Jesus is our fellow sufferer. As Oscar Romero said, uh, there is no church that has not suffered. If the church has not suffered, it is not the true church, Uh, and that's because its Lord is the one who suffered, and he did that in order to join us in our suffering. Uh, And so the Psalms talks about how this person was, and indeed all of us are, uh, discarded. Uh, we've, we're seen as waste product, as useless. And yet, because of God's intervention, our uselessness has become useful. Our discarding has been reversed. That the, the supreme builder has picked us up. There are many other things to say, but I, I'll turn to to Revelation at this point, a text that again, that we'll hear a lot of during this season from Easter to Pentecost. Uh, Revelation is this very theatrical book about the triumph of Christ, the slain lamb who is worthy to open the books of life, is therefore fit to be judge of the world, um, his triumph over evil. And that, that is, of course, part of the story of, of the church. It's the core of the story of the church. Uh, and it's the core of this season from Easter to Pentecost. Uh, the reading is from Revelation 1, uh, beginning in verse 4. So it's, it's this kind of introduction to the book after the, after, the, after the first introduction, kind of second introduction. John to the seven churches who were in Asia. Grace to you and peace. So the greeting that, that we see also in the Pauline letters of, in which the, the early Christians have, have taken the, the normal way of opening a letter. It just means hello, Kirin. And, and given these very spiritually rich terms, grace and peace. Karis kairini. Grace to you and peace from him who is, is and who was and who is to come. And, and so we're talking about God. God is the one who has always been. And from the seven sp- spirits who are before his throne. One of the themes in the book of Revelation is that heaven is not empty. It's a very crowded place. It is this, the heavenly throne room. is full of, of God's retainers of his, of his court. Very powerful beings of various kinds. Uh, but also human beings, huge crowds of human beings praising the Lord in every language because they come from every culture. So there's this very grand idea and and we get it already at the beginning of the book. And so the greeting is from God and then and then the seven spirits around the throne and from Jesus Christ. Now the text wants us to wants to tell us who Jesus is. So it gives a list of epithets as it constructs its Christology. The, the martyred one, the lamb who was slain, has various features. And so he's called the martus, the witness. And the pistos, the faithful one. Now, I just read from the NRSV, which translates those two words as though they, they're one phrase, a hindaitis, the faithful witness. And that's, that's possible, certainly, but it could also be simply that these are two slightly different labels. That would be interesting, if so, because, you know, the faithful one, that's easy to understand. And some of the, the next things he says, the firstborn of the dead, we, we read that in Paul about Jesus is the firstborn of the, the first fruits of those who sleep. The first one to be raised from the dead and therefore the, the promise of God that many others will follow. Uh, and then the ruler of kings of the earth, uh, that also is straightforward, though it's very grand. Again, the the slain lamb is not just a lamb and not just an innocent person who got in the way of the Roman Empire, uh, like so many others in the first century. Jesus is the one who is the, the triumphant Lord. But that 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 word witness arrested me this time around because. Um, Revelation uses this phrase other times. In Revelation 2.13, it describes Antipas as a Martus, as a witness. Uh, Revelation 17.6 talks about the Lady Babylon, i.e. Rome, who is drunk on the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. That's the phrase. Um, And in those texts, also in 11 verse 3, in those texts, we're talking about human beings who, um, who, who who don't just see something and keep quiet about it, but who bear witness, those who have seen something important and bear witness to it. Now, we know that that word martus actually becomes our English word martyr, eventually, someone who is slain for a cause. But its root meaning is witness, the one who bears testimony. Um, and the, and that, that fact raises the next question, which is what, what are they witness to? Antipas and the ones whose blood is, are being drunk, who were literally martyrs in our modern sense as well as in the ancient sense of the witness, uh, are human beings who've suffered for their faith, but they have borne witness to the fact that God has triumphed over their suffering that God is bigger than the even the Roman Empire, as mighty as it is, bigger than the forces of evil arrayed against us. Um, and I think 1.5 should be understood in that same connection, that Jesus is the one who testifies to us in his life and his teachings and in his death and his resurrection that um, that God overcomes the world. I think that's an important message during this season when there's so much anger and frustration in our, in our culture and when the church so often does a poor job, let's be honest, a poor job of bearing witness to the good news. We're pretty good at telling bad news, judgment, but not very good at telling good news, uh, deliverance. And in the season of all of that, it reminds us that the church, again, the church that doesn't suffer isn't the true church. But but the church, uh, church's suffering is not an end in itself. Uh, and so this text goes on. It describes Jesus as the one who loves us and frees us from the sin, from sin, who makes us a kingdom of priests. This old image from Exodus that other other New Testament texts also pick up. Uh, and, and priest on this earth, but priests also in the heavenly kingdom. And then, and then he gives us this beautiful line that we need to hear as well. Again, very fitting for the season leading to Pentecost. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. wail. There's judgment but there is also hope. And Revelation will talk about that and we'll explore that further during this season uh, from, uh, from Easter to Pentecost. Our third text is Acts chapter five, uh, 27 to 32. So you remember in the book of Acts, we get this movement from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're in this sort of Jerusalem part uh, where the gospel is, is spreading uh but it, it also raises uh, conflict that when you tell it, it, it's a funny thing about human beings that when you tell us good news, sometimes we don't like it. Uh, we especially don't like it if we're in charge and if we have power. because the good news is that there will be change. And change implies that maybe I lose some of my power and some of my comfort and privilege and all the rest of it. Uh, so that others can have it. It's not that it's a zero-sum game, exactly. But, but clearly, sometimes there is reversal of fortune, and that's necessary to bring forward uh, those who've been suffering. So we get this story in chapter 5, though, about the persecution of the church. Uh, and uh, the apostles have been arrested and, and charged with various things. Finally, they they get their day in court and they stand before the Sanhedrin in verse 27 and they're told, look, we told you people to stop talking. We told you to stop talking about Jesus and you didn't do it. And not only that, you're blaming us for his death. Now, what I suppose I would do is try to weasel out of the charges. Say, well, you know, um, oh, I didn't mean that, or I didn't do that, or whatever. Uh, but that's not what Peter does. Peter, as the spokesperson for the apostles, says, "Well, we ought to obey God, not human authorities." That that statement, at the risk of taking it out of context, is very important for Christians. We have to we ought to obey God and not human authorities. No human authority. No human authority. No political leader, no wise person can ever, ever be our God. We can never say Jesus is our king and -and so-and-so is our leader without simply committing blasphemy. Uh, That's what it is. There's no second place. We follow leaders provisionally, always. And so Peter says we ought to obey God and not human beings. And then he goes on and talks about why why, why, should, why, we should do that is because God has raised up Jesus. God has intervened in our suffering and our sin and has brought us new life. And so we ought to obey God and not you folks. The interesting thing about that is in this story, the Sanhedrin accepts it. They let them go. And that strikes me as a very <coughs> extraordinary thing. Um, they're persuaded to do this because they're Gamaliel, in the story, Gamaliel, who was a famous rabbi, is known outside the New Testament, uh, the ancestor of a number of other very famous rabbis. Um, Gamaliel says to the court, "You know, we don't know yet. We need to we need to wait and see." So he calls for spiritual discernment, and. And, and that, that follows. It's really quite an amazing story, actually. Another sign of divine deliverance. The last text, and I'll bring here, the last text is from John chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 19. Uh, very famous text about uh, the appearances of Jesus, first to Mary Magdalene which we heard at Easter time. extraordinarily beautiful story. But also two other stories. The first one is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in John, uh, the, the disciples re- receive the Holy Spirit from Jesus while he's alive. We don't have John's version of the history of the church, so we don't know what he thought about Pentecost. But he lo- locates the, uh, the receiving of the Spirit here uh, whereas in Luke, we get it at Pentecost. Uh, There's slightly different views, but the point is uh, the, the, that the Holy Spirit's presence in the church uh, is given first to the apostles and then to the church as a whole. But it's, uh, it's a, this extraordinary gift that we're not alone. We're not bereft just because Jesus isn't physically here doesn't mean that his presence is, is absent. But uh, we also get the story of Thomas, the Doubter. Uh, The phrase Doubting Thomas, of course, has entered the English lexicon. Everybody knows what that is, even if they don't know where the story comes from. A Doubting Thomas is a guy who has the sort of show me attitude. I want proof. And the interesting thing, of course, is that Jesus gives him proof. He doesn't condemn him for seeking proof. He says, okay, it's a fair question. But the answer he gives, to me, is instructive. He doesn't do a miracle. He doesn't part the Red Sea or uh, go around raising a bunch of dead people. He says, stick your hands in my side. Feel my wounds. Know, Thomas, that I have suffered too. I have suffered with you. And God has raised me from the dead. Talk about the Old Testament Psalms being in Jesus, right? Uh, That same attitude, that same sense that God has delivered the sufferer from, from the suffering. And therefore, we should celebrate uh, and we should tell the good news is, is here in this story. And of course, there are many other dimensions of it um, we could talk about. This text doesn't doesn't seem to be that worried about doubt. Jesus does say, blessed are those who do not see but believe. That doesn't mean that they don't have doubts. It just means that they, they, they take the risk of faith because it is a risk. They take the risk of faith even when they don't have all the certainty but the faith that they're entering into is the same faith that thomas also receives at this moment when he touches the 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 risen lord and he sees the suffering that the lord has been through so to tie all this up and and of course there are many more things to say these texts are full of rich and wonderful things but they allow us to reflect just a bit about what's coming. The stories of Easter make it clear that that God intervened in the world in the, about the splashiest way you could. He raised a crucified man from the dead and made him Lord in Christ. And we see in these texts that, that sense of the exalted Christ, he humiliated himself, but now... Is exalted again. We see that that's that's the core of the Christian gospel, that 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 V shape of exaltation to humiliation to exaltation. Uh, and we're going to see that, and that's the Easter story, that is the Christian story. But we're moving to Pentecost when that story will become public and available to everybody. This is a story about the church's message to a diverse world. It's a story that diversity is not an optional item in the Christian faith. It's baked in. It's one of the key ingredients. All have sinned, all need redemption, and all have been offered salvation. And we will see that when we get to the story of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts, that we're going to hear the news that God has made promises, intends to keep them, offers the Holy Spirit to those who receive them, and calls upon us to walk in a new kind of life. It's a hopeful season. Thank you for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. Anything you have, any comments you might want to make, and I hope that these reflections will be a blessing to you all. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst Until next time.